This is IVP. This is The Disruptors, a podcast from InnerVarsity Press. Hosted by me, Esau McCauley. Much love to Brother Romero. Yeah. I do want to have him on the podcast. For the people who read Reading While Black, the Brown Church is basically the Latina, Latino version of this book. Much different because it's historical, it's theological, it's doing different things. But what he's getting at, the same problem, he finds one side wanting to strongly represent like his ethnicity and his culture and having to leave his faith at the door. And this is his way of saying, no, both of these things are important. And so I said, okay, anytime you're, you're coming in and you're turning over the tables in an academic discipline saying both of these things are important and that orthodoxy and orthopraxy can go together, then you're a disruptor. And so part of it was just like, let me let this man cook. And That's so, a good fit. Yeah. So it was a good fit. So that was, the, that was the first reason. And I read the round church and I liked it and I was moved by it. There's a class that I teach called The Bible and Theology in Color. Mm-hmm. And it's looking at um, socially located readings. And I just use your book and Manana as the. So we were trying to bring together Asian American, African American, and Latina, Latino theologians all into one class. So we had two readings from each tradition. I had to narrow it down. So I did Manana and I did your book. So tell me, like, did I make a good choice as far as like, <laughs> it's Manana? I'm assuming you know that one by um, Gonzalo. Oh, yeah, Pusto. Yeah. I am humbled. Yeah, who's the who's Dr. Gonzalez? Oh my gosh! Like, no, he is he is just like the the Godfather, and I'm honored to be mentioned in the same syllabus with him. So yeah, so much of the racial conversation in America is dominated by the black-white binary, and the narrative is structured like from a black-white framework. I wanted people to see coast and the southeast don't always understand the immigrant experience of what happened in the west. And so I wanted to kind of open up that story and understand how that story complicates the racial narrative in the United States. What does that have to do with, like, Christians? <laughs> That's the problem. <laughs> well, I will say this, that your book was uh, a big inspiration to me. It opened my eyes um, about things about the Brown Church that I didn't even know. It gave me language to, to put to things that I was seeing. It also gave me encouragement because it's always good because sometimes you're tilling your own little field and you look up and you see, oh, there's there's a faithful worker over there. So it was good. To, it was good to, to to read about what you were doing and, and, and see the fruit of your research. I come from a multiracial background. My dad's from um, Mexico, Chihuahua, Mexico. My mom is from China, actually. My dad's family came to the U.S. in the 50s via El Paso, Texas, and East L.A., and my mom's family came to L.A. My mom's family were actually pastors in China before the Communist Revolution, and they actually um, started InterVarsity there, which is you know pretty cool legacy. Um, but uh, so I grew up multiracial in Los Angeles. Like when I was born, I was I was born in Goshen. In, in East LA, but by the time I really kind of was, was old enough to remember, or pretty much my whole life, I, I, I lived in Egypt. 
you know, with a lot of kind of the, the privileges of Egypt, wow. uh, metaphorically, metaphorically, you know. So um, I, I, I uh, kind of grew up, you know, kind of middle class, mostly with, again, with ties metaphorically to Goshen. Yeah. But um, um, Jesus radically got a hold of my life in law school. And everything just changed. Everything changed. And then I was like, okay, Lord, uh, now that I know you, what do you want to do with my life? And that led to a, you know, a really long discernment process. But eventually I felt like, okay, God, I think you want me to become a professor and to use that platform to address issues of race and Christianity. And then that led me, to, you know, to finish law school. And I got a, I got a PhD in Latin American history and so many journeys along the way. But um, I've been at, at UCLA as a professor for 15 years in Chicano studies. And I'm proud to say that our department is now the Cesar Chavez Department of Chicano, Chicano, and Central American Studies. And um, my, um, yeah, like for, for many years, um, getting tenure, I was doing, my wife and I, Erica, we were doing ministry on the side, working with activist students and trying to figure out, you know, like, it's, it's, it's called uh-huh. Jesus, Jesus for Jesus for radicals, right? Jesus for revolutionaries. See, re- yeah. for, for, for revolutionaries. I'm sorry about this. See, I told you I did my real research. You got to give me some credit for being able to drop that. So go ahead. I'm sorry. Thank you. That's funny. Like yeah. my wife in her spiritual direction program, her spiritual director, like the 70 year old nun kept calling it Jesus for evolutionaries. <laughs> <laughs> kept saying that. So Jesus for radicals is yeah. just fine. <laughs> um, and so we worked for many years, you know, working with activists to try to bridge faith in Jesus with justice and, you know, grassroots activism. Um, but at the same time, my, my work with UCLA was, my academic work was about um, the Chinese in Mexico, which I love, but it didn't have much intersection with, with the ministry work we were doing. And after getting tenure, I just, I was, lis- I was listening to a Lauren Hill song um, oh no! No, you got You got. You got to tell me which Lauren Hill song. Cause this now you speak in my okay. love language. Which one? Hold on. Let me there see. Um, um, Adam lives in theory. Can I guess? Okay, it's no. definitely like you're getting really hot because actually I kind of misled you. It was actually one of the interludes in between, you know, the songs on the MTV album. Okay. Right? Yeah, and, and it was in one of these interludes. Oh, I know it. Said, I know it. Watch me. Watch me. Watch me get this. Watch okay, me get okay. this. It's when Lauren said she had to introduce herself to people for the first time. Yes, yes. Oh, she, see, look at this. I should win some kind of award. Go ahead, go ahead. There you go. And she said, in addition to that, she said, I'm tired of leaving two-thirds of myself outside of the door. Yes. And so I'm like, oh, gosh, that's me, right? You know, thank God, praise Jesus, praise Jesus. I have tenure now, but now I'm going to bring this together. I'm tired of leaving two-thirds of myself outside the door, my ministry side, my pastor side with my academics. And that led me on the journey, you know, to try to figure out, well, what's the history of the Latino Latino Church and social justice, and that's the brown and that and the brown church is the result of that. This is the thing that I really identify with the opening of your book. You talk about you had students who felt like they had to either give up their ethnic identity or their faith to kind of exist in the ethnic studies world, and you're someone whose whole career has been in a place that is secular, where you said didn't value kind of the spiritual side of who you were. So can you say a little bit what it was like to navigate a place like UCLA? And I don't want to get the title of the department wrong. We're the Cesar Chavez Department of Chicano, Chicano, and Central American Studies. Yeah. So what was it like to navigate that space as a person of faith? I mean, what I love about our department and where they put so many of us as Christians to shame is that, you know, 
justice is the center of everyone's concern, right? It's like that department exists to bridge the community with research, right? In economics, in in linguistics, in history, and everything, right? Literature. So it's so, on the one hand, like that part of it, I just love so much, right? And my colleagues, they live lives of justice. And I'm just so proud to call them colleagues. Um, on the other hand, the discipline of Chicano studies, you know, which came out of the 1960s, again, lots of good things about it, but it's been historically um, Marxist. I'm not talking about like the way that, you know. Yeah, I know what you, you know, mean. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not like now when people say, oh, you, you care about justice, you're Marxist. Not like that, but 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 like, you know, in, in, in a, I mean, an academic, like actually, academic Marxist. Sense, right? yeah. actually Marxist, right? <laughs> and, uh, not everybody is Marxist, but it's influenced strongly. And so, you know, Marx said, you know, religion is just the opiate of the masses, right? So that's very much the, the, the perspective and the idea that, and it's true, actually, that Christianity was coupled with colonialism, right? And racism and all kinds of horrible things for 500 years. Of course, you know, as a Christian, as a historian, I know that that's about 85% right. The 15%, it's the people that I talk about in the book, right? You know, Cesar Chavez and Las Casas and Sor Juana and all these people. That's one of the things that I said when, to my class. And forgive me, like I'm, I'm an outsider looking in. And as someone who's in the African-American Christian tradition, we're a little bit different. But I said, I can tell that he's going through the history looking for the brown church. He's just not there easily discerned. And so and what I said to the students is sometimes when you go back and you look in the history of the church, what you need is not the whole of the church to agree with you or to understand, but it's to understand that there was some light shining in a dark place. And what I said about your book, The Brown Church, is that what you do a very good job of is even when things are dark, you point to some light. And the other thing that you do that I really enjoy is that even when you're pointing out some heroes or the people who do good things, you're also very honest about some of their failings. Like, okay, he or she did these two things correct. Okay, we need to acknowledge that this part is problematic about their history. But then the next person kind of picks up on that flaw. So I like how you did that in the book. Oh, thanks. I mean, it gives me hope, you know, as a deeply flawed person myself. And as you say that, I'm like, that's so interesting. It's almost like, you know, one person does some good they have some flaws and then God raises up someone else who also has flaws, but picks up on the flaws of the other person. You talked about at the beginning of the book, how students sometimes struggle with reconciling on the whole, as you've kind of looked at you, you know, you've experienced um, higher education over the last 15 to 20 years. Do you feel like most um, students, do they make it through? How do you notice how they process this strong division between the concern for justice and their own spirituality. I, I see a few different cases. Like one, one scenario is where like people, like they fall away for a few years. They're like, forget this. Right. They're like, now my eyes are opened about justice. And then, and then they go home and they talk to their pastor or something or the local campus ministry and the local campus ministry says, Oh, I don't believe that stuff. Like that's just Marxism or that's not the gospel. And there's some people that just like immediately they just say, okay, forget church. And then maybe three years down the line or four years down the line in a very painful process, they might come back to their faith. There are, are, are folks who they tough it out. Right. And like, they're okay with the ambiguity. It's hard, but, but, but they, they still stay connected to Jesus and the local church. And then some folks like 
they 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 turn away and I and I've never seen them seen them I've never seen them come back. It's really painful for me to see that. Which one of those paths did you take when you went through all of this? This is so. This is what was so interesting about my journey was like when I was in college. Um, <clears throat> again, like I was just I just was all about making lots of money, right? I was like immigrant family. I want to become a lawyer. I'm going to be rich and famous. I'm going to drive a Ferrari. I'm going to be you know all that stuff, right? Um, and I, I cared a little bit about justice, but not very much. But then when I was in law school and Jesus got hold of my life so radically, like that experience was so earth shattering to me <laughs> that like I could never deny it. Right. So as I came to after getting to know Jesus so deeply and being transformed and still being transformed, like when I encountered that horrible stuff, like in, in the history books, Manifest Destiny and Jim Crow and all that stuff anti-Chinese laws, and I, and I saw Christians doing that stuff, like, because my experience was so yeah, existential, like, I was never, I mean, it's just this is just God's grace, I was never tempted to fall away from Jesus. I always thought, okay, there's got to be something wrong with the people that are saying that, because, because I know Jesus. <laughs> yeah. So, it's really, I can tell you something about, like, your book that was really helpful for me, and and to give you a little bit of an idea of like how at least one black reader processes it. And then also it even gets to like, it's funny, I could, I could talk about this, it's the flaws in my own construction of a class. I was speaking to you before we started recording about this class called New Testament in Color, where we're bringing together African-American, Asian-American, Latino, Latina scholars, and we discuss a couple of readings from each group as a multi, in a multi-ethnic setting. And so since I come from the black church, we have a particular history. You know, we come to the United States via slavery for the most part, and there's this strong separation between, like, Af- the Africa um, of our homeland to America. So Africa exists almost like a cultural construct that exists that we don't have direct ancestors to. Like, we have, obviously, biological ancestors. But we don't know them. And so the black church in America kind of begins as its own unique thing. And there's, like, the seven historic black churches and we kind of become the center of community and we go from there. And so when I constructed the class, I said, okay, I need to find the seven historic like Latino churches. And then that'll be the the solution to the problem. And plus the African-American experience, because we're largely centered in the Southeast, it's not the same kind of immigrant story with the connection between the borders. Right. And so this idea, Mm -hmm. I'm starting reading reading about Brown church, and I realized so what I was what I was thinking and what I was dealing with, and forgive me if I'm rambling on, is that in evangelicalism there was such a focus on missions and globalization. I said I wanted to talk about black people in America. And so then when mm-hmm. I go to the brown church, I'm thinking, okay, where are the seven historic brown churches? <laughs> and mm-hmm. I only want to talk about people in America. And then I started reading about books like Manana, Santa Biblica, your book, and I started saying, wait a minute. You can't tell that story with the same kind of strong separation between like the United States and the immigrant experience. And so one of the things I liked about your book was the fact that you managed to make it almost a trans-global phenomenon. And so I guess mm-hmm. the question I want to ask you is how do how do we conceive of the brown church in America? given the fact that it's not just in the United States, but it's this translocal thing. Sure. I guess I should probably like maybe say what I mean by brown church. Yes. Maybe for the people who don't know you, yeah, give us, give the people, the listeners a, de- a definition. 
So there are several layers of meaning. On the one hand, brown church refers to the Latin American and U.S. Latino, Latina Christian social justice tradition, right? That's the one simplest meaning, right? From, from basically 1492 to the present, how have Latino Christians and Latin American Christians journeyed with Jesus and challenged slavery and challenged colonialism and challenged Jim Crow segregation, et cetera? That's one meaning, this 500-year history. One thing I'll say about that is that the Brown Church is older than the Protestant and Catholic divide. So the Brown Church actually... Um, the way that I, I see it was born in 1511 in the, in the Caribbean um, when a, a Spanish priest by the name of um, Montesinos, Montesinos, like he was witnessing all the horrible things that happened after Columbus colonized the Caribbean, we, you know, Haiti, Dominican Republic, Cuba, Puerto Rico. And he saw that how that like basically the native populations there were just being genocided, right? And so in 1511, on the Sunday before Christmas in 1511, this priest gets up there, preaches to all these Spanish elites, and he preaches the first Christian social justice sermon in the Americas. And he tells them, he says, listen to me, what you're about to hear will be the strangest things you've ever heard. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, right? And then he, then he proceeds to tell them, God give you the opportunity to share about Jesus in love, and instead you're exploiting it, exploiting it for greed. If you don't repent, God's going to send you to hell. Fifteen <laughs> eleven, right? Again, six years before Luther nailed his famous theses, and the next Sunday he got back up and preached the same thing. And ever since then, we've had people that God has raised up, Catholic and Protestant, uh, Latino Christians who have challenged all the various injustices of the day. That's the first definition. Is like this five hundred year tradition. Um. But when I talk about brown, I don't mean a, secondly, a literal brown, right? As Latinos, we come in all shades, all hair colors and types. And, you know, we come from, you know, from indigenous Mayan to indigenous, you know, central Mexico to <laughs> Dutch Calvinist Ecuadorians, right? <laughs> Everything, right? I didn't know about the Asian presence in South America and Latin. I, that was something that I just didn't know about. And you mentioned that in passing. And yeah, most, most people don't even know about that. And I, it's know like, yeah, I, I learned. I, yeah. was, I was like, oh, this summer I learned something new about that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So like by brown, it's like all that diversity. It's all in us. And so brown, I, I'm referring to all that together um, as, as a metaphor. Mm -hmm. And you also refer to like brown, if I remember correctly, forgive me, as being kind of socially located in the United States kind of between like the black white binary as inhabiting a complex space. Yeah. So that's the third layer of the meaning of Brown. It's like, you know, in U S race relations and racial discussions, we have been for the last couple of hundred years in between black and white, in between black and white, legally, socially, economically, politically, you know, religiously, where we're kind of, we're in between. And uh, there's always been a few of us where if we get enough money, marry the right person, um, that kind of thing. We, we, we could gain honorary whiteness, right? Like think of like Ted Cruz is like yes. that, right? But there's always been Ted Cruz's, right? On the other hand, uh, most Latinos in all of our diversity have never been able to make that leap into whiteness, yeah. right? And so, you know, we've kind of been in between in, in that sense. And so, yep, yeah, Brown in that sense is very much sort of a U.S. sort of discussion of race. So... The question I, I, I want to have about like the Brown Church is I felt like this book 
in a lot of ways was like, and I want to make sure you hear me clearly when I say this. Your description of the Brown Church was very important, and I really enjoyed it, and I learned a lot. I almost wish that the book was out last summer. In the mm. sense that I remember like when like the immigration and there was a lot more I mean I mean it doesn't really it's, it's so I guess what I want to say is the racism kind of jumps around in the United States, right? <laughs> we have like a rise in anti Asian sentiment and now we have kind of like dealing with like um police violence in African American communities. And I felt like, man, I wish black I, I wish the brown church was out like two years ago <laughs> when we were like really yelling about, you know, the worth of um, like the immigrant peoples and, the, and, the, and like what the church has to say. And so I guess what I want to ask you though now though is like what do you think that your book contributes to the present cultural moment? One, to the larger church. Yes. Um, I think brown church, in our history, we have models of deconstructing and reconstructing our faith in light of racial issues and coming out on the other side, you know, um, just stronger in Jesus. Right. So like there's a lot of, you know, deconstruction happening right now in the U S and I think that that's good. Much of it's good, you know, faith and religion. And I just had, you know, every, you know, a couple of phone calls this morning with people that are going through that process. And there's a lot of deconstruction. Most of it's good. Some of it's bad and very little reconstruction. And I think um, through the stories of the Brown church, there are really practical models of, how you deconstruct, but also reconstruct in a healthy way. And there's theologies about that in history. So like an example is like um, Latin America in the 1960s and 70s, you had people like Rene Padilla, Samuel Escobar, who are still alive actually, but they're in Latin America in the 1960s, 1970s, and they, they're they trained in, in um, kind of U.S. missionary models and sort of a very exclusively American individualistic gospel. And, and, and they're preaching this individualistic gospel to university students in the context of like revolution and dictators killing thousands of people and all these horrible things. And the university students told them in response, they said, okay, Jesus loves me. Why is this good news? Last week, my uncle just got killed. Every, you know, 30 people on my block just got killed. We have no food to eat. You know, the U.S. is intervening in the United States in these horrible ways. Why is this solely individualistic message good news, right? And they got together with many thinkers, theologians, and others. And and they went through this process where they said, we need to separate what the Bible actually teaches from what they call ropa anglosajon. What the Bible actually teaches and Anglo-Saxon cultural clothing. One of the things that I loved about your book, and it's similar to what I was trying to do in my book, and, and you mentioned it in the story that you were telling, is that so many people think that the way towards liberation is the deconstruction of the text. And what I liked about your book is that it's pointing for a way to keep um, the importance of the scripture and the formation of the lives of the people with the work of justice. Was that something that was always easy for you to keep those two things together? Or was that something of a struggle? Again, that's funny. Like it's, it's has, I mean, it's not, it's not always easy. Of course, there's, there's difficult passages and, and there's lots of things that I wouldn't claim to fully understand in scripture. But, but again, because Jesus so rocked my life, like it's like, if it comes to like a, a disagreement with scripture or something that I don't understand in scripture. And then what some activist says, I've always been like, okay, I'm like Augustine, right? It's like, there's something I don't understand. Well, it's either like a copy, either someone who copied it 3,000 years ago and made a mistake, 
or there's something I don't understand, right? Um, but it can't be the text. It's got to be my understanding, right? So I, I'm, I'm very, like, um, orthodox in my faith in that sense, you know? I mean, probably where people would really criticize me, I think, if they really knew how much <laughs> I felt in the Bible. <laughs> Hey everybody, Richard here, producer of The Disruptors. InterVarsity Press wanted me to let you know that you can go to ivpress.com slash disruptors with an E to learn more about IVP books and get 30% off all titles with free shipping. And now let's go back to the conversation. What about what about when you think about, um, and maybe this is different in the on the West Coast because you know you're talking to a Southerner here, but mm-hmm. what do you think are the hopes of the Brown Church's cooperation with the Black Church? Because there's historically been like, if, and if I'm reading, and I think that you you mentioned this that part of what happens, especially during the '60s and the '70s, is that some of what's going on in the African American Church tradition inspires some of the stuff that happens in the brown church tradition. But do you see much of a history of cooperation in the past? And do you have any hope for that in the present moment? I think that you you get glimpses of cooperation, right? Like Cesar Chavez and Dr. Yes. King, you know, and some of that kind of, um, but just really on the edges. And, you know, so sadly, like there is not much history of cooperation. I mean, there's history of like, for example, if you dig deeper into history, um, a lot of, of, of Mexican, you know, historical figures had African ancestry, which is which is something that's that's one point to be made. Um, and you had like one of the first slave revolts um, in in the Americas in the it took place sometime in the 1500s. I want to say the first um, half of the of the uh, 16th century in Mexico, right? And, and there was this leader by the name of Gaspar Yanga who created one of the first successful slave revolts and started um, a separate community. So the, you, you have histories of that, right? Um, but beyond the historical level, sadly, I don't see in the in the church context that much sort of solidarity. In the present moment, though, I, I do see I do see that happening. Thank God, and I'm so happy about that. So, like in the LA context, right? We have like in Pasadena great black brown work being done around policing like um friends of my Myra Macedo um Nolan and um Marcos Canales and and um and Flora Nang and anyways so I, I can point to examples so that's really good um another great example of black brown solidarity and again sadly largely outside of the church but then I'll come back to that is the um uh, the movement to legalize street vending, street vending in, in LA and in California. Yeah. So for, for a lot of years, you know, like people didn't like black and, and Latino street vendors. Right. And people tried to like, basically like extinguish them sadly. Right. But you had community orgs in East LA and other places that brought together black and Brown street vendors yes. for about five years or so. And they legalized street vending in the whole state. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. Right? Amazing. And the way they did that on a practical level, part of their organizing strategy was they would have these trainings where for like six months they would get together black and brown street vendors, learning the history of the history of, of racial injustice, learning about community organizing and so on and so forth, hearing from different speakers, leadership skills. 
and that grassroots movement led led to that, right? And so if, if we can replicate that in the church, oh, that would be so amazing and, and so important for that to happen. Do you ever, as someone who is contending for this thing called the Brown Church in a culture where the Brown Church is never, is not always appreciated, do you ever get discouraged or feel like giving up? Oh, yeah, all the time. <laughs> all the time what keeps you going long walks with my wife where we just like lament and then eventually like start praying long drives where we get like a we buy like lots of greasy food and like <laughs> zucchini and ranch and we just like lament <laughs> um, you know conversations like this you know finding um that's the big thing is finding people of like mind that we could all lament together I, um, and then, every, and then, you know, at, at just the right moment when God brings some kind of, some example of, of, of a small victory into, into my life, then it's like, okay, that stuff keeps me going. One of the things that I'm still trying to get my head around, because, um, if I had to speak about at least the way that you described the, the, um, the Brown church is that it's in, in a different from like we talked about the historically black churches that like the AME, the CME church of God in Christ, the Baptist, they're very, um, like we said, focused on the United States and they're largely Protestant. One of the things that really struck me about the Brown church was that it's like, it was, it was transnational and it was ecumenical. But the question that if that's, if that, if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly, but the question I'm still trying to get my head around is, how do you see like individual um, brown churches like functioning in neighborhoods and in cities? And are there particular leaders who currently inspire you, like pastors of churches who our listeners might not know about, who you said, this is a modern instant, you know, modern manifestation of the brown church in an ecclesial space that gives me hope. It doesn't have to be, yeah. a big, it doesn't have to be someone famous. It's just someone who's inspiring to you. Yeah, for sure. So one thing I'll say is that, um, yeah, the, honestly, the most influential brown church pastors that I know, pastor churches that are maybe 50 people, right? Yeah. And they're working three jobs and they're, you know, still out there, you know, like caring, you know, for the needs of the, of the community. And I mean, the church that I, the church that I attend, La Fuente Ministries, it's a small um, Latino church, bilingual, maybe 60 people on, on a good Sunday. And Pastor Marcos, Pastor Jen, Pastor Rosa, and others, um, Pastor Julia, they integrate, first of all, in their, in their teaching, they integrate Brown theology, like talked about in the book, with scripture, with the holistic gospel in this really powerful way. They are out there at the same time, you know, week by week, caring for individual members right yeah. learning from individual members if if, if if a young kid who's 17 years old doesn't have papers they'll be the first ones to be able to you kind know, of get, get the right lawyer and do all this stuff you know in the grassroots at the same time you know they'll be out there you know like you know prayer vigils when there's shootings in the neighborhood and things like that so um la fuente ministries again is, is, is an amazing example i think of a of a brown church that I would that I would point to. I'm glad that you said that because um, I do a lot of interviews for my book, similar to what you're doing now. 
And I always get to the Q&A and people say to me, well, what are five books that I can read about the black church? And I said, you know what? And this is the recommendation I've given to people time and time again. Rather than me giving you, like, the black ecclesial tradition, like the lived experience of black people, isn't like something that you can study in a petri disc. Instead, what I said, that you should find a black pastor and listen to them preach and teach and lead for a year. And then you begin to get an understanding of the rhythms and the issues and the concerns. Because one of the things that I think about the black church is it's not just an academic discipline, it's a lived experience. And so, so the fact that you said, the best way I can talk about the, the Brown church is to actually go and look in the actual communities. It's what I think. And this is the hard part because um, by the time we get to the place, me, you, or anyone, we're writing books about something, right? We have reached an act, like we're in some sense never giving the pure form of it because we're, we're mm-hmm. mediating it through all of our academic formation. And so mm-hmm. we're trying our best to put into words something that there is no, there's not like a bibliographical footprint for. Did you find yourself with that struggle of saying, I'm trying to articulate something that's on the ground that I want to make sure that I capture properly? Mm-hmm. No, for sure. Like I, I wanted to be really faithful to that. Um, and I mean, when I was early on this journey of learning about it, um, Pastor Marcos told me, he said, if you read a lot of the early Latino theology stuff in the U.S., it's really strong because the people that wrote it were pastors. Yeah. If you if you read some of the newer stuff, it's like it's a lot of people that are actually detached from ministry. So it's just kind of all in the head. And I remember that that stuck with me. So I've always tried to, however imperfectly, you know, have one foot on the ground in grassroots ministry, and one you know one one foot sort of in the books, if you will. Yes. And so, I, but that's just by God's grace. I think like when I was writing the book, it just so happened like in the last three years, all the emergency stuff with, with um, you know, anti-immigrant sentiment and you know DACA ending and pastors getting arrested. And so I had the privilege of coming around. And this is just totally God's grace. As I was writing and conceiving of the book, at the same time, I was learning to become a community organizer. I was like cutting my teeth, learning from like, um, you know, many other Latino pastors, learning from Melvin and Ara Valiente um, and, you know, learning from Alexia Salvatierra and like really like, you know, trying to fight for pastors to not get deported and separated from their families. So I was so privileged. Like, so it was kind of like by God's timing, I kind of did, it was able to be, do both at the same time. And I hope that that comes across in the book, but it wasn't something that I really planned. No, it does come across in the book for someone, once again, to give a window into what's going on right now. Like how, how do you perceive, and I know I'm not asking you to speak as a representative of like, um, Latino and Latina brothers and sisters everywhere. But how does it, like, how are you experiencing kind of the run-up in in churches, the run-up to this election and the current climate? Because it feels like there was, I'm not saying that the strong anti-immigrant push isn't there, but it feels like currently there is, like, where a year or two ago there was a, high, there was a highlight on the immigrant issue. That stuff didn't go away. But it feels like right now we, there's like the anti-Asian stuff coming out of COVID-19 and there's kind of the police violence with African-Americans. But like what's actually – and what I'm saying about this, I don't actually believe that the lived experience of people have changed. What is it like to stay in that community and still be doing work when the news cycle has shifted? What I have found in my circles is that um, we're st- – you know, my friends, it's not everybody, right? I see two responses, right? I see number one – um, my friends 
who are so, and my church and others, so galvanized by this horrible anti-Black violence, right? All the horrible, you know, killings, Breonna Taylor and, 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 and all those horrible things. So we feel the same, like, oh yeah, that's our experience too. Um, and, and we want to like, we want to stand with, with our Black sisters and brothers. I see that's one response. Another response is so sad. And this is, you know, like talking about being brown, right? Is that yeah. you can choose, you can opt towards whiteness if you want to, right? Fairly successfully. And like, you see those, it's, and this makes me so mad, just livid, right? When I find, I'm just going to be just straight up, you know, assimilated Latinos that just like, they just think that, you know, that they're Trump's best friend or something, right? And I see that too, right? And just like last night, there was like this Facebook back and forth where, you know, a thing where, I, you know, I posted something, about, you know, Brianna Taylor, and I just went back and forth with this one guy. I was so mad at him. He's like a Latino pastor, yeah. and he calls himself a theologian, and he's just like zero heart, zero compassion. And I just, I, I didn't hold back, right? Because yeah. that's, nothing's worse to me than that. But anyway, so I find those two, there's two extremes. It's like, maybe what I'm saying is like, the Latino church is aligning itself in relationship to Trumpism. Yeah. That's, that was heavy. <laughs> Can I ask a question about that, actually? So let me explain. We have a white producer. He gets to ask one question <laughs> per episode, <laughs> maybe two. He got so excited that he had something to say. He couldn't control himself. <laughs> so he didn't even introduce himself. So this, this is like, you get to ask your question. Yeah. So um, the, I feel like a lot, of, a lot of times that perspective of like the, the pro-Trump, like Hispanic person is often attributed to this immigrant mentality. And I wonder if you could speak to that, like this idea that like we came here the right way, we worked hard for it. And, and oftentimes like would affect their approach to both white people who might be perceived by them as lazy or like black people who have been here all along and quote unquote complaining or whatever. So it's kind of like, I mean, that's always been one approach, right? Like if you're a persecuted part of a persecuted group, minority group, your choices are to fight. That's one option. Another option is to just say, okay, I'm going to actually become part of the very system and, and try to gain acceptance that way, right? So one approach then, you know, amongst Latino pastors is like, okay, I, I'm a good Latino. I'm a white Latino. I came here legally, right? That, that kind of thing. And then have Trump visit your big church and then you get like all these grant, all millions of dollars of grant money. That's a real approach that a lot of people take. Another approach is like, you know, when, when you've been so pushed down and you, and you, you don't have that option, you're like, no, I'm, I'm going to fight, right? And then a third option is some people just, you know, see what's, what's wrong, but just are going to stay quiet. Um, but that's part of, if you will, like the Latino racial conundrum, right? Is that we're brown, we're neither black nor white, and we will, we will adapt in a couple of different ways. I remember hearing, I'll show one more story, like, I was part of a, a, a kind of church and race discussion at USC a couple of weeks ago. And um, there was a, a female rabbi there um, and she was sharing kind of a similar thing in, in, in um, kind of the Jewish community. I've never attempt to speak for the, a community outside of my own. I barely speak for my own, uh, but, but she said like, you know, in the history, because, you know, there's so much trauma in, in the um, Jewish experience over the last 50 years she has observed a couple of different responses as well that really mirror what I said about the Latino community. 
either number one, you know, like, you know, um, feeling camaraderie and saying, yes, we were once slaves in Egypt, right? And so I'm going to feel, I'm going to feel compassion deeply with the people who are modern day sort of on the margins. And the other response is like, what's, what's that, what's that guy's name? Um, the, the Stephen something, right? Um, the guy who's like Trump's immigration guy, right? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Right. You know, where they say, okay, you know, well, nobody, nobody cared for us when we were going through so much trauma and hurt and suffering. So I'm just going to get mine, right? Those are kind of two trauma-informed responses that um, it's deep. I feel like there is a history in the African-American context and the Latina context of each taking care of their own community. And you've noticed that there is a um, history of, okay, black people deal with black issues, you know, Asian Americans deal with Asian American issues, Latinos deal with Latino issues. And I would like for, and the reason that I invited you on the podcast is I would like for, and this is the reason why I did the the class, the Bible and theology in color, because I feel like it's very easy for each one of us to then like center asking white Christians to care. So, and then it becomes, well, whose turn is it? Is it black people's turn to get attention? Is it Asian Americans' turn to get attention because of COVID-19? Is it um, Latina because of immigration issues? And it feels like all three of us, these communities, are, are, are looking towards the white community asking for help. And there's very little cross-conversation. And I do think that you're correct. And this is the sad part. This is the actual sad part. And I'm talking about at least my own community. We had some of that around DACA. I feel like there was some multicultural coalition around DACA. Not as much around COVID-19 and anti-Asian sentiment. And then there was like, I feel like there's a large-scale galvanization around um, um, anti-black violence. What what I would love to see, and maybe we can figure out (laughs) in the last five minutes of this podcast, (laughs) what do you think can be done beyond periodically yelling at each other, yelling on behalf of an oppressed community on Facebook. Like how do you get the black, the Brown church and the black church to actually see that we're part of this common struggle for justice in this country? I, I think like, you know, from a, the- from a theological perspective, you know, we're all Galileans, right? Like yes. as, I, as I talk about in the book, like Latino theologians really emphasize the fact that Jesus was from Galilee and that Galilee was the hood of its day, right? Yeah. And it was like the people were marginalized economically, socially, politically, and so forth, right? And as black and brown communities in the United States, we're Galileans, right? <laughs> um, and, and our Asian American brothers and sisters, of, of, of whom I'm a part too, you know, yeah. maybe not materially, you know, like everybody is, is Galilean in that sense, yeah. but in terms of the racial discourse, and not to mention there are lots of poor Asians as well, yeah. right? We're all Galileans, so if, if we could come across and enjoy, and see our, our common our common sort of theological sort of connections, that's one thing, which which would lead us to an understanding of our common um, social um, kind of the fact that we that we struggle through similar the same structural systemic kind of concerns, right? Schools and healthcare and all these kind of things, and then I guess on a very practical level, like let's get together. Yeah. Maybe maybe we need to throw a conference called the Black and Brown Church. We need to do something together, me and you. I used to be a part of the. I mean, we had this thing called the Call and Response Conference that I organized. And I had a three-year plan. And had I listened to the Holy Spirit like I was supposed to, it would have been amazing. 
because I wanted to do three conferences. The first conference is going to be on the black church. The second conference is going to be the black church and the brown church together. I wouldn't have used the term brown church, but I'm just picking up on your nomenclature. And then the third year was going to be the black, brown, and Asian American church together. And had I done that like I was supposed to, um, it would have been 2018, 17, 18, and 19. And so we would have been like right where we needed to be, or 18, 19, and 20. And so I didn't listen because I got busy and I, you know, I started doing other things. But I do think that the future for justice and at least rooted in the Christian scriptures is on the united testimony of the, the varied ethnicities of this country together testifying about God's will for the world. So with all of that being said, if, as you look forward 10 years into your career and you ask yourself, what does victory look like for me? What are my hopes for? So, what does victory look like for me? What, what would I want to say about my ministry ten years from now? And secondly, what would I want to say about the Brown Church ten years from now that that I would like to see? Mm, amen, amen. One one thought that I've been kind of talking about, thinking about, and praying about recently is to start like a Brown Church Institute that can become like a hub for reflection and policy and and organizing around issues of of justice and the, and the Latino church. And so that's one thing I, 10 years from now, it would be amazing if, if that could be like, you know, have legs and arms and be, you know, sponsoring conferences where people of, of all backgrounds and especially, you know, Latino, Latina, different denominational backgrounds can come together and get training on issues of justice and interdisciplinary training. So that would be one big vision. I would hope that you would have a strong um, movement of young people who love Jesus, who are, you know, getting their professional degrees and really just making an impact and not feeling that they have to choose between their faith and justice. That, that, that would be major, major victory for me too. I think that, that, that would be my, my vision for 10 years, God willing, training and research and or, organizing. And what I want to recommend everybody to pick up the book, The Brown Church. And if someone is interested in connecting with you, can you give people where they can find you on social media and all of the other good stuff? Oh, yeah. So um, Facebook, Robert Chow Romero. Uh, Instagram, Robert Chow Romero. <laughs> Twitter, <laughs> Profe Chow Romero. I'm easy to find. There we go. Obviously, like we're two scholars. We're not practitioners. One of the things that was really clear is that there isn't still a strong cooperation between the black church and what he calls the brown church. And I understand that like there's Afro-Latinos and I'm not talking about this essentialism word like there's black here and then there's Latino here and there's no overlap. So don't hear me saying that. What I'm talking about is how our communities are often estranged and we still haven't gotten to the place yet as believers to learn to cooperate and contend one for another. I hope that we will begin to see that any oppression is something that we all ought to care about. And so what I hope is to introduce people who said, oh, this is the black podcast because, you know, because Esau's here. Well, no, we're actually a podcast that cares about a variety of things. This isn't the first time we did this. We dealt with immigration in season one. But this is my way of saying, no, no, no. In so much as we are disruptors, we aren't limited to one box. So hopefully people will be introduced to another community that also deserves our support and respect. Thank you for listening to The Disruptors. 
We will be grateful if you would subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me at Esau McCauley, and you can check out the best and most disruptive offerings from InterVarsity Press authors at IVPress.com.